HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. Hello, everyone. I am Carlos Escas, and I'm your guest host for today. Today, I have with me Nina White, founder of Bubbling Dairy and Bakehouse in Northern New Jersey. Along with her life partner, Jonathan White, they have built a thriving, sustainable business making cheese and bread. Their cattle are 100% grass-fed, and not all of their cheeses are made with their own milk. Since 2010, they have been practicing regenerative agriculture and regenerating the soil in their farm. As many of our listeners may remember, I have been talking to cheesemakers and advocates about sustainable practices in dairy production. I became aware of the work of Nina and Jonathan from my friend Sam Frank, who has been working with them as assistant herd manager. He wrote to me in a message introducing them, quote, they are the real deal. You should interview them for Cunning the Car. So here I am. Welcome to the show, Nina. Thank you. Glad to be here. Fantastic. Um, so let me start by asking you, what's your background? How, how, have you always been involved in farming? Absolutely not. Uh, I, my aspirations for my life were to be a ballerina. I trained at the Joffrey Ballet School when I was a high schooler from New Rochelle. Ended up switching over to modern dance, and I have a degree in dance, modern dance, from NYU Tisch School of the Arts. As a dancer, nutrition and uh, the environment were very important to me. Nutrition, of course, for feeding my instrument, but I was always very involved with the environmental movement as well, having cleaned up my schoolyard as a Girl Scout in the first Earth Day in 1967. So when I met Jonathan, uh, his aspirations were similar not in the dance realm, but food and the environment were very important to him as well. So the evolution came through food and nutrition. That, that's wonderful. That's a very 
um, big switch from dance to uh, farming. So what made you decide that you wanted to make cheese and bread? So when I was a ballet teacher in Yorktown Heights, New York, some of my students were the children of the musician composer David Amram, who is also from a farming legacy. And he was milking uh, a cow, some goats, and he and Jonathan met in the waiting room while I was teaching David's daughters. And Jonathan had always wanted to try making cheese. So when David mentioned that he was milking animals and didn't really know what to do with all that milk, Jonathan waved his hand and said, I'll take it. I want to make cheese. So this began as a life hobby for Jonathan, and he got really good at it. And eventually, how could the modern dancer tell the software engineer not to go for it in the cheese making world? <laughs> right. That sounds like a wonderful story. And so I don't personally know your cheeses. Um, and I don't think many people outside of uh, northern New Jersey will know them. Can you describe to us what type of cheeses you're all making? So Jonathan is quite the renegade and decided that he would not emulate the world cheeses in his work. So our textures are unique in that they can be both semi-firm and semi-soft at the same time. Jean-Louis, which is named for the chef Jean-Louis Paladin, is a huge wheel for us uh, between 17 and 22 pounds. And it has almost a light semi-soft texture, light and crumbly with a runny edge and that cheese has a bold, meaty, tangy, buttery flavor. Very hard to describe, but very compelling. And it's extremely popular. We start making it by about June when we have enough milk to make the large format. Uh, this season, we are milking almost 70 low producing cows. So our customers are always impatient for the Jean-Louis release because we do allow it to ripen at least three to four months so that it can fully develop its flavor. We don't want to make the spirit of Jean-Louis mad that we served it before it was truly ready. Nice. Um, this is one of the things that when I was talking to Sam and also the things that I have read online about you uh, sort of struck me that you have taken a very um, mindful approach of not only not referring to your cheeses, um, uh, you know, with names of international styles, um, uh, but also that so much of your cheese making practice responds more to the milk and to your terroir, for a very, lack of a better word, than to actually follow a recipe. Could you tell us more about sort of that philosophy of the business? Absolutely. Uh, and our cheese called drum is described absolutely in that manner. It is designed to be an expression of our daily terroir. In winemaking, terroir is easy to understand because each season produces one harvest of grapes 
and each year's weather and conditions are going to is going to dictate the outcome of the raw material being the grapes. For us, we have a daily harvest of milk and each daily harvest is a reflection of the grasses, the weather, the stage of lactation for the cow. And so we don't do anything to that milk other than pipe it from the milking parlor directly into our cheese vat. And based on what we now know after 20 years of this natural farmstead cheese making, we know how long to ferment it, how much rennet it's going to need. And then we allow each day's production to vary sometimes slightly, sometimes greatly, but to make that size and shape cheese be the best cheese it can be at that time of year. It's a wholesaler's nightmare, but we're not designed for pallets and pallets of the same product. We are designed to really allow that day's harvest to become its best self. That sounds wonderful. And so can you describe the flavors of the of drum? Drum can be bright, grassy, earthy, and the texture can be firm yet smooth on the tongue. Sometimes if the drum stays in the cave long enough, after six months or so, it can be almost spreadable. Wow. So it's a unique combination of textures and potentials. Early in the spring, the drum has that bright grassy note. It's very, very tasty, but not challenging. So uh, also our rinds are allowed to be a polyculture of beneficial microbes that we foster in our cave. So our rinds can be very gray and mottled and frankly scary looking <laughs> to the uninitiated. So we, um, I, I actually use very frank terms when I'm guiding someone through a tasting at our farm store or at the farmer's market stand. And I'll say, yeah, this is really scary looking, but it's not going to hit you in the back of the head. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a very uh, unique combination of elements. That sounds wonderful. So those are two of your cheeses, Jean-Louis and Drum. Is there a, another cheese that uh, you're producing? Yes. One of our most recent inventions I encouraged Jonathan to create during the pandemic when we weren't able to sample, which uh, is really a challenge for us because of the expression of terroir in our product. So I wanted Jonathan to create something that was easily identifiable on the sign and verbally. So I encouraged him to create a cheese, which we call foray for ray. The first foray is like the French word forest, and that is for the Belgian ale foray, which we sometimes use to wash that cheese. 
And uh, 4A was also the ale that we used to start our bread starter here at Bobbling. The second for Ray is for R-A-Y, a gentleman named Ray Dieter, who was a dear friend of Jonathan, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but he was a beer expert. And um, he had a wonderful series of businesses called DBA. And Ray really brought artisan beer to the fore in New York City and also in New Orleans. So the cheese is a tribute to him. It is a half pound wheel that is semi-firm and ale washed. It's very tasty, but again, not too challenging. So it's accessible and complex at the same time. That sounds wonderful. I really want to try that one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to make arrangements to send you some samples. Fantastic. Thank you, Nina. And so you have been here talking um, you know, about the development of flavor in cheesemaking, but so much of your production also relies uh, on your soul uh, generation, but also your cattle. So why don't we start with um, the land that you've been regenerating? Yes, yeah, so uh, this is actually our second farm. Our first farm that we founded Bobolink on was a leased farm in Vernon, New Jersey. And we were there from 2002 to 2010. The pastures there had been in hay, so they were a bit depleted, but not as badly so. And when we first moved there, you know, we, we had just become farmers after Jonathan had been making cheeses with industrially produced milks in the 2000s, um, in, the, in the late 90s as well. So we wanted 100% grass-fed milk, and it's very hard to buy, so you have to just get cows and get a farm. And Jonathan waited for me to make that suggestion because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fancy modern dancer from New York City. Uh, but I said, you know, let's just go for it. Anyway, um, we purchased the smallest, lowest producing dairy cows we could find. So smaller lineages of Guernsey, Ayrshire, uh, a... Um, brown Swiss cross, uh, and started milking our cows. We were then gifted a small herd of the ancient Kerry cow in 2003 and saw that that ancient cow could be crossed with the smaller lineages of dairy cows so that it could strengthen them. Because what makes a dairy cow different from a meat cow is how much of her body condition goes into the milk. A very, very highly productive dairy cow is going to make a lot of milk no matter what her feed and uh, situation is, and she can become quite thin. And we wanted our cows to produce moderate amounts of milk in harmony with the environment so that they could be more resilient. So the uh, unfortunate situation in Vernon was we didn't own that property. We wanted to own our own property. 
So we were able to purchase this farm here that we are on now in 2010. It's preserved farmland. And when we moved here, it was absolutely uh, corn stubble and erosion and uh, really, really a challenging um, environmental destruction that we had to repair. So in season one, we seeded with leafy millet. It's a millet that really doesn't put up a seed head. It puts a lot of leaf up and there was plenty for the cows to eat right away. And as the cows ate their way across our pastures, we rotated them so that they would stay in one place, really make their impact. And then we excluded them with fencing and moved them to the next area. So we got their positive impact onto as much of our land as possible in the first season. So we uh, continued to improve the fields season by season with the help of our cows. We learned from our Amish friends, by the way, that to have the cows help you seed a pasture, you can paint their back with some water and sprinkle seed on them. And then when they're out eating in the pasture, the sun shines on them, the water evaporates and the seeds fall down. <laughs> so the cows did the seeding for us. That's wonderful. It sounds like a complete project of regenerating that land. And I can totally see the pastoral <laughs> livelihoods uh, there. You mentioned in uh, our pre-interview conversations that uh, Rutgers University has done some studies on the, on the farm. Can you tell us about the studies and the results? Yes. So um, the soil scientist, Joseph Heckman, approached us when we first purchased the land and asked if he could do a 10-year soil study. So he began taking samples before we even began to improve the pastures. And he has charted the improvements which were remarkable for 10 years. Uh, so initially there was a huge upsurge in organic matter, carbon and microflora which the upsurge was almost vertical in season one, of course. Season two, it continued on a fairly steep curve. And then as the seasons progressed, it continued upwards, but did level off. And we are still on that upward trajectory, uh, but very, very gradual. But one of the things that gives me hope is that if uh, traction can be made with the powers that be about how using cows to improve land and graze uh, can switch the, you know, that whole, it's not the cow, it's the how thing. Um, we can really improve things in terms of an initial and rapid improvement to our environment by using the kind of transformation that we did here at Bobbling. So uh, I'm excited for that. There is proof over a 10-year period that there's this initial upsurge and then a continuation of the improved environmental impact of grazing cows. That sounds wonderful and so encouraging. This feels like a very good time to take a break uh, to hear from my sponsors. We'll be right back.
This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conté within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conté. Conté takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineur on average, each wheel of Conté is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conté is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conté is unique. Learn more about Conté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conté-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E hyphen U-S-A dot com. Okay, we are back. Before we continue talking to Nina, let me ask you to follow and donate to the Heritage Radio Network. They have been the home of this podcast since its inception by Anne Saxoby, and we are so grateful for their support. You can donate by going to the HRN website at heritageradionetwork.org. So before the break, we were talking to Nina about some of their farming practices. And these farming practices is not only regenerating the soil, but also very specifically about the type of animals that they have brought into this land. So Nina, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this mix of animals that you have? You kind of mentioned that you had some dairy uh, cows and then you were gifted um, some other cows to strengthen what is the mix right now, or if, if you know, and how how is that um, how does that affect uh, or produce your milk? Well, as we evolved as a business and learned by doing, we started to see a we're an environmental product that makes good food. And with that, we want to look at how much good food our land can produce rather than concern ourselves with how much each cow produces. Because the dynamic of the herd and the health of our animals needs to be the priority and the thought process behind how we manage our breeding program and how we manage our livestock on this land. And what we've learned on this land works quite well, but the rubric has to be what works on another piece of land as, we, as one thinks about replicating what we've done here. So our observations about our cows is more about their capabilities of staying with the herd. If there's a calf, especially if it's a bull calf, who's always out on their own, wandering around and not listening to mama, he's not a good candidate for our breeding bull for the following season. <laughs> <laughs> 
The other trait that one might not ever think about with a cow at this point is the ability to keep their fur coat on in the spring before spring is fully arrived. Cows grow long coats in the winter, which allows them to stay warm. And often some of the higher producing breeds would drop their coat on the first warm day and then be too cold and exceedingly stressed as March came in like a lion. <laughs> so our cows keep their fur coats on for quite some time. They actually look quite raggy in the spring, uh, almost mangy, because the coats only come off gradually. But this is an important trait. Another important trait is for the calves to be born small and then eat robustly and grow. The advantage of a calf being born small is that it's easy to give birth to, and then it can grow robustly once it's born. Um, longevity is very uh, high in our herd. We have cows that have lived 25, 29 years. We have one cow, she, she almost made it to her 30th birthday. Uh, these are things that other um, breeding programs are, are not looking at. Uh, also that our cows are moderate producers so that when the weather is very hot, they don't feel compelled to be out in the sun eating. They can be relaxing in the woods that we give them access to so that they're not stressed by hot weather. So uh, these are things that can contribute to a herd health, having production not be the highest priority, but rather all that is about the animal's behavior and secure uh, sensibilities within her environment. That sounds like a very thoughtful approach of the animals that you have. And, and so much of the stuff that I have been reading and seeing here in Europe about, um, about uh, production is a lot about moving to these uh, smaller breeds of cattle uh, that are more suitable for remedial land, not these perfect pastures that people imagine that exist, but actually uh, you know, cows that can be out and about and they're, they're more ragged. If we, if we think about them. Um, you are also a bakehouse. Can you tell us about that and what type of bread are you making? So uh, one of the things that Jonathan and I had in common when we first met was that we both baked bread at home. And as we got together, got married, raised our children, we baked bread at home regularly. And I'm proudly uh, going to state that our oldest son during the pandemic, grew his own starter and kept that going. So uh, natural bread baking is a very big part of who we are. So when we founded Bobolink Dairy and Bakehouse, it was the perfect excuse to build a single chamber, Allen Scott design wood-fired oven. And we figured we'd bake a little bit of bread on the weekend so that people would have a nice loaf of bread to go with their cheeses. And the breads really got quite popular. And we're at a point where we're baking about a thousand loaves a week. We are sourcing our grains 
predominantly from the Northeast and the grains that aren't grown in the Northeast are still milled in the Northeast. So we're very fortunate that we can be ingredient driven and food shed driven within the bakehouse as well. So um, one of our breads is called the Medieval Rye Levin. And as I mentioned earlier, we began our starter with a bottle of Poiré Live Ale. And uh, so our starter is in two buckets, one that's fed with unbleached wheat, the other that's fed with whole rye. And the medieval rye Levant is the rye starter with whole oat and whole wheat. And we bake those in a six pound loaf, huge thing. <laughs> it gets a huge crust and a lovely soft inside. Uh, we use very wet doughs so that our whole grain breads aren't too dry. And those medieval rye Levant's are then sold by the chunk at the farmer's market. And uh, you can really feel quite hearty and medieval enjoying these things. All of the breads, even the lightest ones, which are unbleached wheat, whole corn, and whole oat, are hearty and chewy. And we have a lot of different formats. Um, a, a round boule, which is called rustic loaf, also known as mommy bread, because it's what I made for the kids before we got started with the business. And... Um, also, uh, we have a small baguette called the Heirloom Fife, which is made exclusively with red fife wheat, which is a true heirloom wheat documented back to 1842. So it's nothing but good, clean fun. And so when, when we're really moving forward on a project, instead of saying we're cooking with gas, I say we're cooking with wood. <laughs> That's really exciting, and those those sounds like wonderful breads. One of the things that you mentioned during this interview was that you plan, part of the plan is, or, or part of the the coming up with these practices is that they will be replicable somewhere else. What's your approach about you know teaching, sharing this knowledge, and you know eventually maybe. Um, you know, turning to other farmers that can replicate some of these um, lessons learned. Since the beginning of Bobolink, we've had an internship program. Uh, so we have hosted numerous folks who have then gone on to start their own projects all over the world. And when people express, you know, aren't you worried that they'll steal your recipe? Um, it isn't that way because it's an approach. It's not a recipe. It's not a written static thing. And I mean, we're, we're never going to get rich quick here. <laughs> that was <laughs> never our goal. A uh, good thing that um, my, my favorite place to buy clothes is the thrift store. But um, our goal is to make it feasible to add value on the farmstead, to make it economically viable, to have dairy, not to pump milk and lose value into a tanker truck for a set price, but rather to add value to a high quality milk that was produced in harmony with nature 
and then turn it into a stable product that improves with age. So we uh, educate people through internships and it's a one year internship. You can't really learn this methodology in an afternoon or a morning. You need to see it through a whole cycle of seasons. And even then with climate change, which yes, is real, you have to see how the decision-making process is because this spring was totally different than the previous spring. Next spring, sadly, is probably going to be even more challenging. So we're hoping to be able to train people to be able to think outside of the box, know what's in the box, and use things from the box when they are useful. Uh, but to make the best decisions as we move forward to make the best quality food without creating a destructive environment. Thank you. And to end, could you tell me has, what has been the most difficult thing in growing a thriving farm with so many little businesses? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Staffing. Staffing is the challenge of the century for so many businesses, and it continues to be for us. Uh, we try to foster a really uh, welcoming environment here. The entire Bobbling team is a team. Um, we cannot afford to pay corporate salaries here, and so some folks do move on. Uh, which is frustrating. I, I don't say goodbye anymore. I know that once somebody has been with us, they're part of our family forever. But uh, it is difficult because we need people with common sense and a love of working. Uh, if you are looking for your day off and your break, you're not going to be a good fit for working at Bobolink. And uh, we do have some very stable folks working for us for many years, and that's fantastic. Um, but it is a challenge right now. No, nobody calls us wanting to work in the store, and certainly nobody calls wanting to be the bookkeeper. So that's me. Uh, so I would say that the biggest challenge is keeping the, the business well-staffed uh, with people to do every facet of what we do here. Yes, that's definitely one of the issues of, of, of now. And I think it, it increases to be, especially in the United States, that there is a resistance to, to um, immigration. Um, but I want to thank you, Nina, for your time today. I will be in New England this winter and hope to taste some of your cheeses and bread. Sounds great. Can't wait. Wonderful. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Please send your recommendations about topics you want to hear or people you would like us to interview. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Curring the Curd on Instagram. Thank you. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.